for those of you who have um, been here, as I've had opportunity to preach here before, you'll have heard me say uh, many things that I admire about both Josh and Tim. Um, I'm thankful for them, thankful for you as a church, and I am thankful for your family of churches. One story um, that kind of brings these things together for me, a couple years ago, um, I was uh, going through a really dark stretch um, personally, uh, spiritually feeling uh, just very weary and worn down, feeling very discouraged in ministry. Um, and Tim, as a mentor and a friend, said, Julian, you should go to the pastor's conference. And uh, I, uh, Tim um, had been, was going to travel with Joanne, so I couldn't go with him. Um, he wisely was protecting that time with her. Um, but he said, Josh is driving down. Why don't you drive with Josh? And I didn't know Josh at that point. Um, but Josh, um, in his kindness, um, offered to let me drive down with him, uh, ride in his car, stay in his hotel room. Um, your pastors offered to um, help with the cost of bringing me down. I didn't have it in our budget at our church. And the Lord in his grace used that conference. Several moments in particular, the preaching of the word through the whole conference, but several moments in particular where I felt like the Lord through his grace was using um, CJ in particular, CJ Mahaney, his message um, in really profound, powerful, prophetic ways in my own heart. Um, there was a time of ministry after that Bob Coughlin was leading where several of the brothers, um, including Josh, prayed for me. And I left that conference feeling as if I owed a debt to Tim and to Josh and to the Sovereign Grace family of churches um, that I could never repay, um, where I was renewed in my strength, renewed in my soul, renewed in my zeal for the Lord and for ministry um, in ways that uh, you brothers could never have known going into that, um, and you as a church could never have known apart from me sharing with you. Um, but I want you to know and to be encouraged that God is using you um, as individuals, using you as a church, using you as a family of churches in many, many ways like this, far beyond what you know. So I'm thankful deeply, deeply, eternally thankful for the friendships that I have here um, and for your family of churches. Um, so all that to say, it is an honor to be able to come and to open up God's word for you today. We want to do that. So let's look together at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4. I'm going to read for us the verses that we'll be thinking about specifically today, verses 11 to 16. So 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 11. This is what Holy Scripture says. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father God, we believe the words that we have read. We believe that you, by your grace, through your spirit, have given us these very words. The sum of your words is truth. So Father, we pray as we turn to truth, as we turn to your word, your scriptures, your spirit-inspired words, Give us grace to hear. Give us faith, hearts that believe. Give us conviction to act. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you doing right now? Someone might challenge you, what are you doing right now in this moment? You are sitting in a pew, listening to a guy on a stage give a monologue. That is a strange thing by any measure. Who does this in our world? Who does this? Who sets aside time every week to come and listen to a guy talk? Monologues are passe. They are antiquated. It is an old form of communication. No one listens to speeches anymore especially not of this length and especially not of this topic. No one wants authoritative teaching. It is, it is all about conversations. Why are we sitting staring at a guy up front? We should be in a circle. We should be asking questions. We should be learning from one another on our journey as we walk together. I don't believe that. But someone may well challenge you Why do you do what you do every week? Is it tradition? Is it just some old habit? Why do you do it? My hope this week is not to so much tell you something that you don't know, because in fact, preaching, like we're going to read about, like we're going to learn about, that Paul commands Timothy, is something that your church already does and models quite well. It is something that your family of churches cherishes and prizes and has set an example for me in. So if it's something that you are already doing, why spend time talking about it? My goal is this, that you would be given faith to believe that what you are doing every single week matters. It's what God wants you to do and there are great promises attached to it. So my argument from this text is, is quite simple. My argument is that when you gather, when you get together as a church, that the word should be primary, the word should be central, the word should be the thing on which everything else is built. In particular, that you should devote yourself to the reading and the explaining and the applying of scriptures. That's, that's my argument, that as you devote yourselves to this, you will be blessed. But who cares what my argument is, especially this week? 
What we want is to see what the text says. So my outline is very simple. I'm a very simple fellow. The outline is simple. It's just this. Uh, what does the text say? And then the second question, the last question will be, well, then what should we do? It's very simple. We're going to spend almost all of our time on the what does the text say. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And then we'll spend the last few minutes just saying, well, what should we do in response? First of all, what does the text say? Look with me at verse 11. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this. Command and teach these things. Now, a good question to ask when you're reading in, when you're reading a text and you jump into the middle of an argument and you see a phrase like these things is to ask, well, what are these things? What are the things that he's to be commanding and teaching? And if you follow the train of thought back up to verse six, you see Paul has used this language before. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. It's not the first time he's said that either. He's explained why he's doing what he's doing before that. Look back to chapter three and verse 14. Paul's explaining to Timothy why he is writing to him. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. What Paul is saying to Timothy is this, everything that I am writing to you is about how you are to behave, how you are to live, so that you know what you're supposed to be doing as the church of God. Well, what are those things? He's just been telling Timothy those things. Look back at chapter two and verse one. What are the things that Paul is writing to Timothy so that he may know to do? He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So he argues, Paul is saying that these things include how your church prays. The pastor, Timothy, is to be encouraging the church, exhorting the church, structuring the life of the church so that they are a church that Praise, and he's to give specific instructions to the men. Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling, not clenched fists fighting, but open hands lifted in prayer. They are to not quarrel. The men are to not quarrel with one another about doctrine. The women are to not quarrel with one another about dress. Likewise, also, verse 9, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So if the men are to not be quarreling about doctrine and fighting with one another, the women are not to be competing with one another and dressing for status, dressing for praise, dressing to be known for the way that you dress, which brings division in the church. So there's to be unity as Timothy pastors among the men, as the men pray. There's to be unity among the women, and there's to be unity among the men and women as they relate to one another. So Paul admonishes, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he instructs that the office of elder is to be protected for qualified men. Likewise, the office of deacon in chapter three is to be protected for those who are qualified. So there is something going on here. Paul is saying, Timothy, here's how you are to manage the church. Tell people how to behave. Tell them to pray. Tell them to not fight. Tell them how to dress. Tell them how to organize their leadership, which means telling some people they're qualified and other people they are not, at least not now. Now, all of this 
begins to give you some kind of impression of why he says, command and teach these things and then follows it with, let no one despise you for your youth. See, if if the role of a pastor, if what Timothy is called to is simply waxing eloquent about the current philosophies or the current cultural situation of Ephesus where he is, or if he's just supposed to get up and say something nice to the people each week and then close with a a sweet poem, then it doesn't matter what age he is. But if he is getting into the nitty-gritty of how people live and relate to one another, what they can say and not say, and who can be in what office and not, all of a sudden, when you start commanding with authority, people are going to be looking for a reason to not listen. So Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Age is one example of a reason why someone may not want to listen if your counsel, if your instruction, if your commands are different than theirs. That can work a couple different ways. That could be, um, in Timothy's case, you're too young. What do you know? Or it could be like in our culture, uh, where if someone is of a certain vintage, all of a sudden now their counsel matters no more because, man, you're like my father's age. You're like my grandfather's age. You don't understand the culture. You're not hip. You don't understand the world we live in. You, you, you are irrelevant because of your age. See, you can go either way with that one. And it's not just age. In our culture, you can write people off for any reason you want. If you wanted to not listen to me this morning, I am white, I am male, I am cisgendered, I am heterosexual. I mean, you start going down the list. There are all all kinds of reasons why people would not want to listen, all kinds of excuses why people would not listen. Paul says, don't let age be one of those reasons, Timothy. Take that one right off the table. Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. As much as you are calling the congregation to respond, so first you must model this life. Don't don't command of others what you're not displaying first in yourself. Don't scatter the seed of the word that hasn't first brought fruit in your own life, Timothy. But be an example. Live what you preach so that they will have no reason to write you off. And he says in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to this, to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You could take the until I come, if you're reading that quickly, you could almost almost read it as if to say, this is what you should do for a little while and then not anymore because there's a time limit on there until I come. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at at all. If, If you read these verses in chapter three, verses 14 to 16, when Paul is saying, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you now so that if I delay, you know what to do in the interim. What Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I got more stuff I got to teach you when I get there, but for now, this will do. In other words, Timothy, until I come, you got the pulpit, but when I get there, there's the pew uh, because I'm going to be teaching. So it's not that teaching is temporary, it's that Timothy's spot in the pulpit is temporary until Paul gets there. He says, this is something that you are to vote, to devote yourself to now until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Look what he says in verse 14. He comes back to the same command. He said in verse 13, devote yourself to it. Now in verse 14, he states it negatively, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is not something 
that is a one-off. It's not something that just Timothy is supposed to do from time to time. It is to be a continual action. Look at the way he describes it. Practice them. Devote yourself to them, verse 15, so that all may see your progress. This is something he's supposed to continually devote himself to, which, which gives us uh, good hope, right? Because so, our, our confidence in coming and hearing from God's word is never in the skill of the preacher. It's in the source of the preaching, In other words, it's not that they should come and listen to Timothy because Timothy's such a great orator. It's not because he's a great rhetorician. In fact, he might not be any of those. People are supposed to see his progress as he labors in this task. I look up to Josh for many reasons, one of which is his skill in teaching, but I I trust that if you look back over the last two years, as God has been faithful with him in the pulpit, you will be able to see this exact thing, that his skill has advanced in terms of his ability to open up God's word, to explain it, to pastorally apply it, to exhort people in it. That's the exact situation for Timothy. Not that he is supposed to be perfect as a preacher, but that he is supposed to grow and make progress and advance as he devotes himself to it, practicing these things, devoting himself to them so that all may see his progress. And then look at what Paul says in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself, that is your life, your behavior, the way you live, and on the teaching. He's cycling all the way back up to where he was in verse 11. Or verse 12, rather, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. He's circling back to emphasize again that what comes out of your mouth in your teaching must first come out in your life, in your living. That your way of life, Timothy, would make a platform for your word ministry. Why? Why is there such urgency in Paul's teaching? Are you, are you picking up on the repetition of the commands? Devote yourself to it. Command and teach these things negatively. Don't neglect it, but positively practice it. Devote yourself to it. Persist in this, he says again in verse 16. Why is Paul so emphatic? Why does it seem like there is so much urgency attached to these commands? Well, because of the result. Because of the outcome. What happens if Timothy actually does practice these things, devote himself to them, persist in them? What will happen? For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Is there anything more important than this? Anything more important than the reality of people created in the image of God, but existing in their death, in their rebellion, under the wrath of God, awaiting an eternity of hell, being saved and and brought into the kingdom of his marvelous light, being brought into a kingdom where there's forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and the promise of eternity in his presence where they will experience his blessing. Is there anything more important than that? That's why Paul is so urgent, because he says, Timothy, if you devote yourself to this, this is what will come. So I want to ask, do we really understand what it is that Timothy is being called to devote himself to? 
If the result of this is that people would be saved, we want to make sure we understand the action itself clearly. So what is it? Look again at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself, Paul says. It's not the first time this devotion language has come up in 1 Timothy. The whole reason why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus is because there already was devotion in Ephesus. Look back at 1 Timothy 1. I want to show you this. What Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the problem isn't that no one's devoting themselves to teaching, it's that they're devoting themselves to the wrong teaching. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says this to Timothy. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There are people who are saying there are other ways of pursuing godliness. Come follow these ways. They're teaching different things and the people are tempted to devote themselves to the false teachings, to the myths, to the genealogies, to the ways of their culture. The truth, the truth is that we still live in a world, a world that's not devoid of teaching but devoted to the wrong teaching. Our culture has our own myths and genealogies too that we are devoted to. We have myths about humanity, where we've come from, what we've evolved out of, what our purpose is. We've got all kinds of myths about gender and sexuality all kinds of myths about morality, about what love is. Love is love, so the mantra goes. All kinds of myths about what justice is. This world is devoted, it is devoted to doctrine. It is devoted to a wrong doctrine. Think about the last TV show you watched. Think about the characters that are represented. What does it mean to be male? How are the male characters represented? How are the female characters represented? How are the marriages? How are the religious figures represented? How are the homosexual and the heterosexual people represented? Everything is designed in our culture to teach. Our culture is devoted to myths. What about the education System. What about the curriculum that is being rolled out to children? What about the books that we are being brought up reading? You don't even have to watch TV shows or movies anymore. What about the commercials, the fast glimpses you get in commercials of what a healthy, normal, moral lifestyle looks like? 
Our culture is devoted so that we are bombarded with myths. This is what it means to be loving. This is what it means to be kind. This is what it means to be gracious. Such that at a certain point, you come back and you start reading your Bible. If you're anything like me and you're like, wait a second, the Bible says marriage is a covenant of one man and one woman. And and the Bible has some kind of distinction between male and female that has something to do with rules. And it's like, what universe am I living in? Am I weird? Am I weird? It is so different than what our world thinks. Am I alone in that? You think that? I, I, I feel that all the time. The world can make us feel like we're going crazy. I love this quote by G.K. Beale. I was thinking about this. I think maybe I've even read this here before, but I find it really helpful, so I'll read it for you again. G.K. Beale writes this. He says, Worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness to be strange. When we imbibe the zeitgeist, that is the the spirit of the age, when we imbibe the zeitgeist of worldliness, then we feel strange trying to think Christianly, trying to act according to the Bible's mandates. That is, when we think the world's thoughts after it and do not think God's thoughts after him, we will not be motivated to do the things God wants us to do but we will only feel comfortable acting in a manner that fits into the world's way of doing things. That is why, he writes, that is why Christians who cease going to church begin to feel more and more comfortable in the world and less and less comfortable in the church for the same reason. This is why regular attendance at church is so important. At church, we worship by hearing God's word, praising God, praying, partaking of the Lord's Supper and fellowshipping, all of which encourages believers and listen, and convinces them that they indeed are the ones who are normal and that the world is strange before God's eyes. You feel like you need that? I feel like I need that all the time. I need to be reminded what is normal before God's eyes? What's strange before the God who created us? In the midst, in, in the face of the myths and genealogies that we are bombarded with, that our culture is devoted to, we need something greater, something stronger. We need to be devoted to something different. We need to be devoted to God's unchanging truth, laid out for us, read for us, explained to us, applied to us, week after week after week. The answer cannot be to withdraw from the world. It must be to devote ourselves to a greater truth. That's exactly what you do week after week when you come and your pastors, where Josh or Tim or whoever is preaching that week comes and opens the word for you. Now, you might be a thoughtful listener sitting there going, wait a second, preacher. You've been talking so far about what happens when we gather about a man standing up and opening God's word and preaching. But I'm looking at this text and this text doesn't say preach. This text says read scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Why doesn't Paul say preach? Why do you think, preacher, that Paul is meaning preaching? That's a great question. I mean, after all, Paul Paul does know how to say preach, right? He does have that in his vocabulary. Remember 2 Timothy 4? 
I love this passage. Paul says to Timothy, in light of everything, he just lays this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of the elect angels and of Christ Jesus and the appearance that is coming and his glory. Everything, his judgment that's to come, I charge you, preach the word. He knows how to say that. He's not, he's not saying this because he doesn't know how to say preach. So why does he say this? I'm not too sure. But I am thankful that he did because it gives us really helpful instruction. It helps us fill in the picture of what preaching actually is. And I'm going to do, um, I'm going to take a couple minutes to try to tease this out for you a little bit. I'm going to do one of those sorry, but not sorry things. I'm going to make you work here. We're going to, we're going to look at a number of different Bible passages here because I want you to see something. And it's something that's, that's really quite obvious, really quite clear. It's just sometimes we just, we just miss the things that are most obvious. Like, like my nose. I've never been accused of having a small nose, but my brain, my brain, though my nose is right in front of my eyes, my brain has learned to miss my nose. Everywhere I look, I don't see it, but it's right there. It's clearly there. Now, here's, here's the reality. There are things in scripture that are right there that somehow we just look at and we miss. I want to just show you from some familiar passages things that we might be tempted to miss. So, so follow me. I want, to, I want to show you the pattern for God's people when they gather to worship, okay? This is a pattern from before Jesus' ministry. This is what the believers did. Look at Luke chapter 4 with me. In Luke chapter 4, this is what Jesus does as he comes to a synagogue, a gathering of Jewish believers. In verse 16, Luke 4, verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. There's reading in their gathering. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. What is he reading? He's reading the scriptures publicly. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him because they know what happens after the reading. There's teaching. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he explained to them how. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, I wish we had opportunity to just sit on Luke 4 for a little while, think about the teaching that Jesus was giving, but we don't. I'm just, I'm pointing out to you the elements of the service. When God's people gather, even before Jesus, this is what they did when they gathered together. There's reading and there is teaching from that text. It's not just before Jesus, it's after Jesus as well. Look at Acts chapter 13 with me. Again, the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 13, and now the Apostle Paul is gathering with them. What is his pattern? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading, see it? 
There it is, right? So nose on your face. You miss it. You just read that. You just kind of skip it over. But after the reading from the law and the prophets, this public reading of scripture, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation, that's our word. If you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, you who fear God, Listen, there is reading from the scriptures, there's teaching, there's exhortation from the scriptures. That's not just Jewish believers, that's Christian believers. Look, the next page, Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregations, this is Christians, these are Christian believers, they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letters, the letter from the church at Jerusalem. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers and sisters with many words. The word here for encourage and encouragement, it's the same word in our text for exhortation. In other words, the letter is being read when they gather together, it's being explained, and there is exhortation given for the strengthening of the saints from the things that have been read. This is the pattern. It's the pattern in the apostolic church as well. Look at Colossians chapter four. I love this one. This one's really neat. Not that the others weren't. I think they're all neat. Obviously, it's God's word. This one's cool though. Look at Luke, or, or Colossians chapter four. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. Colossians 4.16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Why do I point that out? I point that out because of this. Remember what we've seen in all the examples when the congregation gathers together? What do they read? They, they say, we need to read God's word. We need to read the scriptures. So they're going to read something from Genesis, something from the Torah. They're going to read something from the Psalms. They're going to read something from the prophets, maybe Isaiah. Or, hey, you know what? How about Paul's letter? Do you see what's happening? See, we live in a world where people are going to, you know, on the internet, they're going to post things. They're going to try to convince you. They're going to talk to you and say, don't you know that the Bible is just a man-made thing? It was invented for political reasons. The Council of Nicaea, you can't really trust it. We don't even really know if the early church had a canon, what the canon was, if they even believed in inspiration. That is hogwash. Here you are in the first century and the church is saying, we need to get together and read the scriptures. And what are they reading? They're reading Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the apostles. The canon isn't even finished being written yet, and when they gather to read the scriptures, they're reading the letters of the apostles. See that? You can have so much faith in God's word. What you have is what the first century church had and believed. They are taking the letters of the apostle Paul and they are reading them as scripture in their gathering. And this was the habit, not just in the apostolic church, but in the post-apostolic church as well. Justin Martyr was writing in the second century and he described, sometimes I think this would be fun to do. What would happen if you were to ask like someone from our congregation, hey, just in a few words, write out what a church service looks like. I wonder what our congregation would include. Anyway, I don't know. Here's what Justin Martyr includes. He says, a Sunday gathering looks like this. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, the New Testament or the Old Testament, are read 
as long as there is time. I, I like the way he describes that. As long as there's time. We got time? Yeah, all right, keep going. All right, we'll just keep, yeah, keep going as long as there's time. Then when the reader has finished, the president, the elder, the leader of the church, in a discourse admonishes, he exhorts and invites the people to practice these examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. This was the pattern so you need to understand this so that you can have faith because in the face of opposition, when people are going to say to you that preaching is a white thing, preaching is a modern thing, preaching is a Western thing, propositional teaching is somehow new in the history. It's not ancient Near Eastern. People will devote themselves to trying to discourage you and dissuade you from faith in what you do week after week. But what you actually have is a scripture-given rich history and tradition. This is what the church has been doing for over 2,000 years. This is incredible. What you do when you gather week after week as you engage in this tradition is the very thing that God wants you to be doing. Paul says, Timothy, devote yourself to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. He includes a definite article, the reading, the exhortation, the teaching, because these are elements that they would expect in their service. What am I saying? I'm saying this. You know how we speak of the Lord's Supper or the prayers or the songs? He's saying these are things that you would expect to be part. The reading, the exhortation, the teaching. What we know as the preaching event, when Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, whatever you understand the preaching event to be, it has to include at least these three things. The reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. People need to know what God's word says and how it applies to them. That is biblical preaching. That's what God wants, what Paul wants Timothy to devote himself to, what he wants the church to devote themselves to. So how does this then lead to salvation? If this is, if this is what Timothy is to devote himself to, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers, what's the connection? The connection is this. If you are devoting yourself to the reading of the scriptures... Old Testament or new, it all testifies to Jesus. If the teaching of the church matches the apostles' teaching, the apostles were teaching how all of the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus. If the exhortation is now live this way, live this way, repent, respond, be changed, you cannot exist under that teaching week after week after week without either rejecting it or getting saved. Because you know what? This is what happened to me. I grew up in a church. I learned all the Bible stories. But the more I learned the Bible stories and the more I tried to live in the church, the more I realized I didn't fit. My life didn't match. I couldn't do all the things that were being commanded. And then all of a sudden, all that I had heard about Jesus made sense. One day I was standing in a church and I looked at the cross on the wall and I realized that what Jesus did when he hung on the cross was for me because I couldn't do all the things I'd been exhorted to do. I couldn't be that person. So Jesus had to take my place. When the scriptures are read and taught and exhorted, it will drive people to the cross of Jesus. The fulfillment of all God's promises. The hope of forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life. Now, you might be thinking, like I've often thought, if the goal of preaching every week is simply salvation, well, then we should just you know, get up, do a little gospel message, and then everyone can go home. That's kind of a weird thing. But see, in that moment, what we're doing is we're understanding salvation wrong. 
The salvation that Paul's talking about isn't just conversion, though it certainly includes it. See, here's what I don't think. Paul says, Timothy, you're going to save yourself and your hearers. I don't think Paul's thinking there, going, Timothy might not be saved. I don't know if he really gets the gospel. He probably needs to be confirmed. Paul's not thinking that. So what does he mean when he says Timothy can be saved? He means something like what the author to Hebrews meant. When the author to Hebrews rounds out his letter, he says, I thank God for that you have borne with me in this word of exhortation. He has quoted scriptures, he's taught from scriptures, and he's exhorted from scriptures, what? That they would persevere, that they would press on, that they would endure. See, salvation, salvation that Paul's talking about is about finishing the race. Now, that means some people need to get in the race. You need to be saved. But also for those who are in the race, who are weary, who are worn down, this is how you are strengthened. This is how you're encouraged. This is how you're built up. It's through the preaching of the word week after week after week. The text says that we will be saved if we devote ourselves to these things. We will be converted changed and preserved. So if that's what this text says, then what should we do? How do we respond? I think there's two different ways to answer. I'm going to answer that in terms of our practice and in terms of our posture. In other words, our our actions, but also our attitude as we approach the preaching of God's word. How does this affect our practice? Well, first of all, I would argue this starts before our weekly gathering. It's not something that just, this doesn't just have implications for when we gather on Sunday and you're sitting in those pews. It has implications for before our weekly gathering that you have called a pastor to study and to to mine the treasures of God's word so that when you come week after week, he can devote himself to this. So as you have seen your pastors do this, week after week, preparing their hearts to come and to bring to you what is necessary for you to be saved, here's one idea, you can encourage them. Thank them for the ways they've been faithful to do this already. You can encourage them to continue to do it more and more. You can even ask them, hey, pastor, I'm so thankful for the ways that you serve us by spending the time in God's word and delivering it so faithful for us week after week. What can I do to help you? To free you up more and more to be devoted to the word of God and to prayer because I need to be saved, so you need to be doing this. So how do we free up your schedule so that you can do this more and more? It starts before the gathering, You can encourage them. You can also admonish him if there ever comes a time. I cannot see this with your pastors, but if there were ever a time where your pastors were moving on from this command and devoting themselves to other things, you as a church need to admonish them. This is how God will save. So changes before the weekly gathering. It has impact for in the weekly gathering as well. It impacts how we read. We read with authority God's word. We read as if commanding God's people's attention from God's word. We read as part of the proclamation, as part of the preaching event. It also affects how much time we spend in our weekly gathering. We don't just spend a long time on the sermon and the scripture reading just because we like hearing ourselves talk. I know you're pastors, I know that's not true. We spend our time on this in our service because we believe these words. This is what God wants us 
to do, so we devote time to it. And when we preach, when we read the scriptures and exhort and teach from them, we preach the gospel because this is how people will be saved, and we preach the gospel for application because it's not just about conversion, but it's about engaging life that we would be preserved and changed until the end. So your pastors, when they are preaching and the application is heavy, when the application is hard, understand what they are doing is they are laboring for your salvation, for your perseverance, for your conformity to Christ. So we preach, we preach the gospel, we preach for application. As Paul says, command and teach these things. It's also why your pastors expect you to be here on Sundays. See, this is, this is one of those things I like preaching at other churches because uh, it, it can sometimes come off a little like, uh, like, I got, like I got a chip on my shoulder if I say something like this in my own church, but I don't know how often you're here, so I can just say this boldly for the sake of your pastors. You need to be here on Sundays, not because it gives your pastors an ego boost to see pews full. It has nothing to do with that, but simply this. If you are to be preserved, if you are to endure to the end, if you are to be conformed to the mind of Christ, if you are to be finally saved, God does that as you gather and hear the word read and taught and expounded, applied to your life. You need to be here on Sundays with the church when that is happening. It, it has impact for what you do in the gathering. It also has impact for what you do after the gathering. So whether that's your fellowship dinner that you're not doing today, I didn't know you weren't doing it today, whether that's your fellowship dinner uh, and, and, and the fellowship that you have, the conversations that you have, whether that's in your tag, wherever it is, are you engaging the preached word Applying it to one another, encouraging, encouraging and exhorting one another as you have heard from your pastors on Sunday. Beyond your Sunday gathering again as a fellowship of churches, as a family of churches, you are invested in this. Evidence of grace, I thank God for you as a movement, for your pastor's college, for your church planting emphasis, for your desire to train men for ministry and your emphasis on expository preaching. As you have done this, you have been faithful. As you continue to do it, you are walking in obedience to God's will. And I thank God for how you've done that. That's how it should affect our practice. Keep going. Keep going with all that. What about our posture, our, our attitude? What about what we expect as we gather? Well, if we're thinking about our expectations, it's worthwhile asking, what are God's expectations? God has given us this clear expectation that he says people will be saved. That means sinners will be converted. The dead will be brought to life. That means Christians, baby Christians will be matured. They'll be grown and strengthened. That means older Christians, weary Christians will be built up and preserved. That's God's expectation. He has said that he has sent forth his word and it will not return to him void, but will accomplish all his purposes. When your pastors stand up here week after week, they are not doing it in vain. The word goes forward. It will accomplish. It will accomplish God's purposes. God expects that. If God expects that, what should your expectations be when you come on Sunday? I mean, really, like there's so many things that we could think about when we walk in on a Sunday, right? Oh, I hope that person doesn't sit beside me again. Uh, when they sing, it kind of throws me off key. 
You, you, you could be thinking, oh man, I hope I don't have to talk to so-and-so this week. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, I hope I get uh, asked to serve in that ministry. Maybe you're thinking, I just hope this preacher finishes in time for me to get to my Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know what you're thinking when you walk in here. Here's one thing you should be thinking, your expectation. God's word is gonna be opened and God says he's gonna change my life. The people will be converted and my life will be changed by the spirit of the living God. Do you walk in on Sundays with that expectation? That's the expectation that Paul is calling us to have from this text. That not just in a given sermon, not just on a given Sunday, but the diet of week after week after week of being exposed to God's word, you will be saved. This is life and death. So what are you doing? Right now, you're sitting in a pew, you're staring at a guy up front, he's giving a monologue. What are you doing? Is it in vain? Is it just a habit? Is it just a tradition? My friends, my brothers, my sisters, this is the plan of Almighty God so that you would be saved. I pray that God would make you a church that devotes yourselves to these things fully so that both you and the hearers who are yet to come would be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we desire to be obedient. We desire to see you do what only you can do. We cannot save. We cannot change hearts. We cannot give strength to weary hearts. We cannot encourage the discouraged. Only your spirit can do that. And you have said that you would do it through the preaching of your word. So we pray this Sunday and we pray every Sunday, Father, prove yourself to be faithful. Show that your words are true. Save your people. Cause this church, grant that this church would continue as she already is to be a faithful example. Faithfully living out this command to devote ourselves to these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.